Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today on the program, I'm talking with Stan Lai, author of many, many plays, a fraction of which are collected in a new three-volume collection out from University of Michigan Press, The Selected Plays of Stan Lai, Volumes 1, 2, and 3. Stan, welcome to the program. Hi, Andy. How are you? I'm doing well. I want to congratulate you for uh, get, getting a, a big collected edition like this out. That's that's a real uh, monument. <laughs> well, it uh, took some time. It took about 10 years, I would say. This whole, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Because um, I translated everything myself. So uh, the original plays are all in Chinese. Uh, and so it took that long. Yeah, I'd love to ask you a little bit more of the, about that translation process later. But but first, could sure. you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in theater? You you had quite a peripatetic uh, youth, I, I gather. <laughs> well, um, I I grew up. I was born in the United States in Washington D.C. My father was a diplomat for the then Chinese government, uh, which uh, the nationalist. I don't know. This is a bit of history. Uh, which later went to Taiwan, uh, which lost the civil war, went to Taiwan. And so that is where um, the government is now. Uh, so I went back to Taiwan in, in the 60s when after my elementary school in the United States. So I retained my English and I, and I learned, I, got, I became bilingual, uh, going through the very difficult Chinese um, um, education system through high school and college. And then I went back um, to United States, to Berkeley, to get a PhD in theater, which was very odd because no one was studying anything about the arts or literature uh, in the day. In the day, anyone who had um, any, any sort of talent or, or, or whatever um, went into sciences. So um, that seemed to be the only only way out. Uh, and for me, mm, loving all things artistic and since I was a kid, uh, most, most people like me would be severely uh, repressed in Taiwan of the day uh, by their families or the society or both. And I was um, very lucky in that my, 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 my mother, because my father had passed away by then, 
was extremely um she was she she really understood me and so and so she pretty much let me do what i wanted to and that's that's the story basically when you studied theater at berkeley were you primarily studying western drama or were you studying kind of classical chinese drama or a mix what was your kind of course of study there um there is a very heavily oriented in in western theater uh european theater and then the program at the time was very special because it was it was half academic and half all practice. So so uh, it was sort of like an MFA in directing plus a PhD. So their uh, what they were trying to their ideal was to train some someone called a scholar director, uh, and that's the kind of program I came out of. And uh, then when I went back to Taiwan to teach, which was my goal uh, in 1983. Um, for for well for obvious reasons because Taiwan had been under martial law since 1949 there were no new um, there were no new plays being written there there were no playwrights there was there was not a theater industry there wasn't a, a modern theater there wasn't a, a modern lot of things in in Taiwan in the day mm-hmm. and so to to teach um, acting to teach directing to teach the history of, of Western theater, these were the courses I was I was teaching. Um, I had nothing. I had no sources. I didn't, you know, I had some outdated Shakespeare translations and then a couple of um, random Ibsens and Chekhovs here and there. Uh, and, uh, uh, and a Waiting for Godot that was actually, I, I could find maybe a hundred mistakes in the translation. So, yeah, in fact, the whole the whole meaning was wrong because they translated the word Godot into the Chinese Guotuo, which means is a very Buddhist uh, slant on it. It's like, uh, yeah, so so um, it really um, infers a sort of a, a Buddhist sort of connotation. So anyway, I madly started to translate plays, but how could one person translated enough plays to stock all of those courses. So for acting class, I, I, what I did was I thought long and hard and I said, why do we need Western plays to uh, conduct an acting class or do actor training? Why are, why do we, why are we training in Arthur Miller? Uh, the, of course, the answer, part of the answer was we had no choice because there, there wasn't anything. And the great Chinese playwrights of the 30s and 40s, like Cao Yu, were banned in Taiwan. You know? mm. so, yeah. so, so we had, it, it, it was like we, we should have had some sort of a tradition coming from the 30s and 40s, but that broke because of the Civil War mm-hmm. uh, and the martial so law. Even mm-hmm. the plays that, even those great plays that had been in the kind of in the period where the nationalists and the communists were in a kind of unsteady alliance, even that stuff was was banned, right? Exactly, and in fact, yeah. huh. much realize. of that stuff would be would be nationalist leaning, but still it was banned because uh, those guys were in China. You know, the the playwrights then were in China, um, and so what I did was I was very fortunate in my last year at Berkeley to uh, to meet this. Um, the, this great uh, Dutch uh, group called the Werktheater, the, the Amsterdam Work Theater. And they basically uh, created all their works through the use of improvisation. And I was able to learn 
uh, the the art of using improvisation to create scenes uh, from a master, uh, Shireen Stroker of the Amsterdam Burk Theater. Uh, and and this was a moment when I was writing my PhD dissertation, and I shouldn't have I shouldn't have been doing anything else. But I was so it was a moment when I was actually disenchanted with theater. So it, it's it was quite a predicament because you know if you're if you're studying for a PhD in a certain uh, in a certain discipline, and suddenly you, you lose faith in that discipline. For instance, you lose faith in rocket science, and you're getting a PhD. Something like that. That's what happened because what I was seeing in theater in America at the time, and I'm talking around about 1980, uh, was nothing like what I was studying, and and the things that I was studying, like like the ancient Greeks and how theater was such a uh, such a unifying and such a such a social and political, uh, telling the story, the immediate stories that were so important to the people telling stories that using myths to tell the stories of the people of the, of the day and, and all of Athens coming to see that. I mean, that is so inspiring, but that was, is, was not at all what I was seeing in America. I remember I would be, I would go to the um, uh, ACT in, in downtown San Francisco and I would watch, let's, I remember a new play by Tom Stoppard and the audience, you know, chuckled here and, and laughed there. It was a t- comedy never did they laugh together and and i thought who who did he write this play for and what and what it was our society at that time and so i was very very uh down i was depressed i was going wow i'm uh, my life it, my, i hope to spend my life in the theater but i don't know what it is i don't know what it could be uh i don't know how to how to get where i where i envisioned something but then this group in Holland showed me this, basically they, they were like a, a lighthouse. They showed me the way. Uh, and when I got back to Taiwan, I was facing my students, um, 17 students who knew nothing about theater uh, in a most amazing way. You would think that people who who got into like an academy like Juilliard were, maybe they'd been on stage for 10 years already. But these these kids, because of the martial law in Taiwan and the the whole repression of all the arts, they had no background. They had never seen a play in their lives. And they were now theater majors at the National Institute of the Arts in Taiwan. And I was their teacher. And, and so what I did was, instead of going to method acting, which I could have, which I was trained in, I said, let's build scenes through improvisation and let that be actor training. Mm. And it turned out to be uh, very, very useful. Uh, These kids now, of course, they've all gone on to become uh, very, very good, you know, playwrights, directors, actors in Taiwan, uh, and also in film. And uh, the training is invaluable to use improv and to build scenes and to build plays out of those improvs. And that's how I started. And that's how I continued. And suddenly, after a couple of years, I was a playwright. And and writing plays at a very very uh, fast uh, pace. So, um, what you said, there's 12 plays collected in the in the Michigan collection that has just been published, but I've done over 40, uh, all that have been performed uh, by my group in Taiwan Performance Workshop or uh, my group in Shanghai now called Theater Above. So, um, 
yeah, that's basically the story in a nutshell. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine working that in that way would give your actors a quite profound sense of kind of ownership and agency over the work that they were performing. Was that, did that end up being true? In the early days, more so, because uh, we started by using the basically the experience, life and experience of the of my students. Uh, so we took their stories um, in in the in the studio and we used them directly, or we transformed them. Um, and and it's very empowering for the actors themselves. But I I found in in my method, which actually continues to evolve to this day, uh, I I found very early that improv is in a way it, sure sure it's liberating but uh it's not anything goes um mm-hmm. to me improv must be highly controlled uh meaning putting putting improv into very strict parameters mm-hmm. so basically setting up a scene is setting up the characters uh the actor must know who he or she is and then the situation uh, very, uh, you know, it's not not just some random thing. It's like you can't just go to someone and say, uh, "Let's improvise." Go, uh, what improvise about about what? You know, give me something. You know, so I've found that the the smaller the 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 borders are, in other words, the smaller the playing field is, the more the richer the content comes out. Because particularly starting amateurs like the students that I was working with they to get them to concentrate on things that they know about in a very small playing field then you get you get things that come straight from the heart uh, and that's how we started you write in the introduction about kind of writing your plays using the w r i g h t spelling <laughs> where you're kind yeah. of you're you're making them in the room you're you're sort of fabricating the plays in through rehearsal but in your description just then, it, it it seemed to me like there are sort of two phases where what you're doing is quite writerly in the W-R-I-T-E sense of, mm-hmm. you know, you're coming up with the scenario in kind of an outline form almost. And then, and then there's the improvisation. And then you take that and you refine that into a script and then rehearse that. Am I getting, am I getting the timeline correct on kind of how you, how you tend to work? Very much so, and more and more so. So um, more and more, and, and many of the plays in, in, in the collection are written without improvisation uh, with the actors, um, some of them. And so, yeah, um, I, mo- in the early days, I would just be very uh, bold and just explore and say, let's just go with a group of, uh, of actors. Let's just go. Go where? Well, we'll find out, you know. Um, nowadays it's funny because, uh, many of the actors I work with, they, they become, they very quickly became very much in demand in television and film. Uh, and so I never got the, the freedom to work with, uh, for instance, the, the first play I did with my theater group performance workshop is called that evening we performed crosstalk, which is not in this collection. Uh, but it, but we had seven months of improvisations to work on that which is unheard of today. And, the, and these are professional yeah. actors. I mean, these are the best. This is, these are the cream of the crop. Um, uh, Li Guoxiu and Li Liqing, um, two incredible actors. And uh, 
and in the after that play, <laughs> you know, I would say to you know one of them, say, "Hey, let's do the the new one." Sure, sure. Sorry, I'm you know, I'll be there, but I but but he wouldn't be. You know, the they'll they'll right. be there, but they can't be because they have they're doing a TV show or they're doing whatever. They, they could do a three week rehearsal period or something. <laughs> exactly. Like that. Yeah, exactly. Sure. That's what it turns out. So because of that, my my methods uh, evolved into the into where I would be writing. Uh, very, very uh, explicit and uh, long outlines and, and handing them to the actors on the first day mm-hmm. of rehearsal. For instance, uh, in volume two, The Village, uh, which is also one of, my, one of my better known plays, and then volume three, A Dream Like a Dream. A Dream Like a Dream, I, I handed a 29-page outline to the, to the cast the first day. And normally a play is like 40 pages, right? 40, 50 pages. But this is 29 pages of outline. So... I didn't even know how long that play would be. It turned out to be an eight, eight hour play. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. After shaving a lot, otherwise it would have been much more, much right. longer. Yeah. But, um, the village, uh, I came in with, with, uh, because I worked in dream. I worked with amateur actors, uh, uh, students starting at Berkeley and then later at the national university of the arts, which is this, the school that, the name of the school uh, after it became the National University of the Arts in, in Taipei. So um, for the village, I worked with veterans, people who I'd worked with for years. And because the village is about a very special period of Taiwan history, where um, in 1949, where many, many military people uh, came, came to Taiwan uh, were put in temporary housing because everyone thought, uh, at least the government proclaimed that very soon we would have a, you know, we would have a counteroffensive and we would take back the mainland. We would defeat Mao and and the commies and everything, and we'd take back the mainland. You know, and of course that never happened. So um, the days what became years and the years became decades, and they were still living in those uh, temporary housing. Uh, so these sort of um, you would maybe call them ghettos or uh, a very special part of Taiwan history. Many people, many extraordinary people grew up in those villages. And so we wrote this play about uh, a fictional village that uh, really captured the, the the minds and hearts of not only people in Taiwan, but in all of China also, because they had no idea that there was this history in Taiwan of uh, of people living in, in very, very small, small quarters, like a whole family you would raise a family in a room because the room originally was just for you and your wife. And then you raise the family and then you have three or four children and you still have that one room. Uh, that's how, that's how it was. And so many of my actors came from these villages. And so when they heard that I was doing this play, they all came and said, you know, Hey, we want to be in it. And I would say, are you sure? I mean, because there was, these are some very well-known actors in Taiwan. And I was like, you don't have time to do this. And I said, no, we're going to make time. And so they did. But I, so I wrote the outline. And the first day I saw them, I didn't even, I ha- didn't even assign who was who. It, it wasn't even cast. It was, all, it was just this collection of brilliant actors and an outline. And who, who was to be who wasn't even designated. And that's how we started. And we, we finished in two months and performed uh, in 2008. And it's a very, actually quite a complicated play with 48 scenes. Uh, and we've uh, performed until today. Uh, we have two groups performing, one in Taiwan, one in Shanghai. Uh, and um, 
yeah, we we tour uh, all over the place. And I remember um, a friend from New York came once and saw the the play in Shanghai. And uh, this was a, a Broadway producer. And he asked me, he said, I just have one question. Um, how much did you change after the opening? And I thought about it and I said, oh, at most 5%. You know, just it's basically when it's done, it's done. There's little changes we make, but not much. She said, wow, we could never do that in New York. Uh, in other words, uh, nowadays in New York, we would have to open somewhere else and then make revisions and then again and more revisions do a reading more revisions for us we just open we just do it <laughs> we do it and it's done <laughs> as a as an early career american playwright i'm i'm quite jealous of that, that freedom that you have so you've mentioned that you have a theater in taiwan and in taipei right uh, a theater group we don't have a yeah. actual venue in taiwan okay, yeah but a theater company in, in Taiwan and then another theater. And, and I think this one is actually a physical building in Shanghai, right? Right. It's not only a physical building. We also have a physical theater group. In Taiwan, it's it's a more loose uh, collective of, of actors. Sure. But we do have a producing uh, company in, in Taipei. Yes. So I, I really didn't realize until reading your plays that there was a period of 40 years where there was, you know, almost no communication between Taiwan and mainland China. Um, that's obviously not true anymore, though the two countries are, you know, profoundly different places in, in many other ways. Do you, what are the kind of advantages for you artistically of working in Shanghai versus working in Taiwan? Oh, that's a great story. That's a great question. Um, and the whole story of the 40 years of no communication Perhaps is uh, it, it's it it appears in many of my plays in Secret Love in Peach Blossom Land. It's probably most important there, in the village, of course. Um, but also in um, Look Who's Cross Talking Tonight. Oh, it's Look Who's Cross Talking Tonight. Yeah, which That's features a, yeah two different. I I, I want to ask you more about crosstalk later, sure, but, but yeah, sure. one question yeah, at a time. Well, <laughs> definitely, um, forty years. Um, this is my parents' generation, and I feel that they they probably suffered. Um, so much. They suffered, they went through war, uh, they, they went through the war with Japan and then the civil war and then being away from their loved ones for 40 years without, without having, being able to make one phone call or write one letter, you know, just not knowing what happened to all these people. And then 40 years later, going home, it's like, it's quite, it's quite a story, you know, and, and I've seen it just, you know, from the first row watching, uh, my mother, my other, elders in the family and and everyone it's it's the main story of taiwan in the 20th century to me uh on a human level at least uh, so uh so that's why it's to me um i because i see how this has this tragedy has shaped the lives of of my parents generation and how they manage how they they get on they move on uh, it's it's quite quite amazing. Now today, um, things have changed very very much. Uh, Taiwan, which went through the whole process of becoming democratic in the nineteen late eighties, um, and many people say that our plays were part of that process, and I do believe they were in terms of providing a forum uh, for for issues of the day. Um, in the theater. Um, Look Who's Cross-Talking Tonight was performed in 1989. 
Secret Love and Peach Blossom Land was 1986, even before the lifting of the ban on travel. You know, so we were like ahead. Of, we were pretty much ahead of the times, and 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 actually leading our audiences in the discussion about mm-hmm. um, about these issues. So Taiwan. I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I sure. want to stop you there and just ask a little bit about the the difference between Secret Love and Peach Blossom Land and Look Who's Cross Talking Tonight is quite noticeable, at least to me. It seems like Secret Love and Peach Blossom Land is written in a highly symbolic language, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. a lot of the same themes are very explicitly expressed in Look Who's Cross Talking Tonight. Would you is that is that partially because you you had to kind of work your way around censorship uh, when you were writing Secret Love and Peach Blossom Land? Oh, definitely. In 1986, everything was censored. We had to submit scripts. Uh, but it was a funny time because um, in Taiwan, the censors were getting looser, uh, meaning that meaning that that they were not on top of their job. So that we could, mm-hmm. there, was, there was there was a sort of a, a, a loophole time when we could submit. Fake scripts, okay? So we would, you know, that was a big burden. <laughs> I, I would have to write another script that resembled the script that we were going to do, but did, but had obvious problems with it that the censors could immediately get and say, okay, you can't do this and you can't do that. And we say, fine, because we're not going to do any of it. <laughs> so, oh, so you so would it, actually purposely put things that the censors would object to. Oh, so they yeah, could do I, I would. Job. Yeah, I would throw things in that, you know, and then we would say, you see, they kept that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the um actually there's a i i can i can quickly tell a, a story about uh that evening we performed crosstalk the first play of performance workshop there were some very um possibly very difficult lines that should have been censored in that play uh and and of course we didn't submit those lines to the to the authorities but we performed them anyway so on opening night um we're sitting there and we're approaching those very, very sensitive lines uh, about um, uh, Sun Yat-sen, the father of the country, um, on his deathbed. And um, I noticed two people who shouldn't, who you normally don't see. These guys shouldn't be in the theater. Who are they? Oh, oh, they're the censors. Okay, so they came, <laughs> and. I'm going, wow, what am I going to do here? Because I, I never sit in the audience at my place. I usually stand either backstage or somewhere in the audience. And in those days, I was behind the audience and I was seeing these two guys. And I'm saying, what am I going to do? And by a fortunate stroke of luck, they stood up and, and went out uh, in the scene as the scene was approaching. Turned out they had to go out for a smoke. In those days, everyone smoked, right? So... So I went on and shared a cigarette with them. And they said, oh, you're the author. Oh, yeah, yeah, hey, this is cool. This is so funny. The audience is really laughing very hard. And I said, yeah, uh, yeah. And and I, and we just did small talk, you know. And my ear was on what was going on inside, which is approaching the sensitive lines, which those lines actually, because they were would have been, uh, they could have been uh, um, seen as being very disrespectful to Sun Yat-sen, uh, and in fact, the audience even could possibly erupt in some sort of protest. You know, could, we could have a sort of Ubu Roy sort of evening there. Uh, mm-hmm. And 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 so I'm listening. Here we go. Here we're getting closer and closer. And when the line came, because I'm what I'm doing is I'm providing interference for these two censors who are now in the lobby smoking, right? And and then 
the the lines are coming and coming and my I'm holding my breath and I'm listening and after they say it a pause and then thunderous laughter and applause mm. and then the scene was over and I told the two guys I said okay enjoy your day and I went back in and so that's it <laughs> so so the censors missed uh the most sensitive lines of that play uh, because they went out for a smoke and were detained by me. Uh, and then, um, I don't know, I think success in many ways helps things because the play was an immediate popular success. And so you, you probably don't want to censor anything that, uh, if, you, if you don't feel that it's threatening to the, to the regime, you don't want to censor anything that is, has such popular appeal. And we were lucky that it, did, it had that. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Taiwan's now a democracy. Is there any censorship of the arts in Taiwan today? Oh, you're leading me to what I just wanted to say, which is, and then after Taiwan became a democracy, you know, just 180 degree turn. There's no censorship. There's, in fact, there were no regulations. People could do crazy things like, I remember this one one little theater group um, uh, got up, actually tied up a pig and tied it to the rafters, and the pig was swinging above the audience during the performance. You know, <laughs> uh, yeah, and and uh, yeah, and um, you know, um, anything, anything went, anything goes, anything went. Um, it was a crazy time in in Taiwan. And what I wanted to say, going back to your original question, is today in Taiwan, I find that the playwrights and directors. Are, are all in a way much more technically accomplished, but they don't seem to want to talk about politics uh, as much as we did in, in our day. It seems like there's some sort of stigma. It's like uh, because Taiwan, like America, has become uh, very polarized. And so uh, you're either, you seem to be either green or, or, or blue, you know, and if you say something in the middle or you say, oh, then you, somebody claims that you're theirs or, I don't know. It's it's just it's it's very polarizing, and people are reluctant to reveal their political, uh, you know, beliefs. And to me, that's a very sad thing. Uh, on the other hand, in Shanghai, where we don't talk about political things, everything else pretty much is open, and so we've been able to uh, create a theater scene there, which is quite remarkable. Um, when my friends in America come and see see our theater, they, the first thing they remark about is um, how young the audience is, because we mostly have um, you know twenties and thirties going into the theater these days. Um, and even for a play like A Dream Like a Dream, which is an eight hour play, which um, unfortunately, because I don't I don't mind the books, uh, costs a lot. To it costs about uh, three thousand RMB, which is uh, six hundred dollars to see. Uh, the eight hours, so um, it's crazy. I mean, and and you and the tickets sell out in in minutes. So 
there's there's a vibrant theater scene in Shanghai. Unfortunately, recently was um, was stopped by the lockdown right. uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, but our theater there, we we really think we're we're we've always been very idealistic about all these things, and we do hope that it can continue uh, to provide you know top quality theater there uh, and original works because in Shanghai, not too many people do new original works. Uh, it seems like uh, it's very ironic because remember when I was telling you back in 1983, I said, why do we want these Western things? And now all these Western things, like particularly musicals, uh, are coming into Shanghai and uh, being translated into Chinese. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's like, it's like um, there's, there's a very definite difference between entertainment and serious theater. Uh, although serious theater definitely can have a, a lot of entertainment in it, and that's what my plays are about for sure. Uh, but here we, we still fight a battle in Shanghai, but just to let you know, it's a different environment. Uh, we have to submit everything to censors in Shanghai. So far, they've been pretty kind to my work. Uh, and you know, in Taiwan, there's no censors, but people don't seem to want to do anything very particularly bold. Mm. Yeah, they, I've I've read that a sort of similar situation uh, prevailed in 19th century Russia, you know, the, the period of great Russian literature that, you know, Gogol would say, well, the censorship is great for us. We just have to get more creative than you have to get in France or, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, in a way, all I guess all my career um, obstacles have been the fuel to being more creative, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Actually, Secret Love and Peace Blossom Land, the whole play, the premise of the play, uh, came when we were watching uh, a, a colleague of ours uh, directing a, a new play. And as she directed, uh, as, as her run-through was going through on the stage, this uh, primary, and I'm sorry, this kindergarten uh, graduation ceremony was about to unfold. So... They were moving a piano on stage. They were putting a banner on and, and the teachers and the kids were all coming in. And, and my director friend was going crazy on stage. She's saying like, this is my time. I booked this theater, this theater. And they couldn't find the manager, you know, and, and that is exactly what happens in Secret Love and Peach Blossom Land, you know, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so just to get a little bit more explicit about this, the, I, I I read the metaphor in Secret Love of Peach Blossom Land being sort of about these two different cultures, mainland Chinese culture and Taiwanese culture, sort of fighting over the same history or the same kind of cultural heritage. Heritage is that is that kind of how you intend the metaphor to be read, or is it is it open to uh, interpretations? That's a good one, Andy. Um, the 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 play has been. Uh, performed since 1986 until today, it's still going. Uh, it's it's amazing in its longevity, uh, and and people are still interpreting it. You know, it's one of those it's one of those people say, "I got it," but got what? Uh, they all got different things. You know, so I remember um, the film version of it when it uh, premiered at the New York uh, Film Festival back in the day. Uh, the first question I got at Q and A was. Uh, uh, what does this have to do with Zen Buddhism? Okay, so <laughs> so you see how different that 
that take is from your take. Uh, and then there was many other takes saying, what does the peach, peach blossom land refer to? Because in Chinese, peach blossom land is the same word as like uh, utopia or, you know, like right. an ideal, uh, ideal country. Um, and, and so, it, you know, people were saying, oh, in Stan Lai's play, the peach blossom land means China or, or China before mem- the, the, the memories of the China past. And other people say, no, you're wrong. He's saying that the peach blossom land is Taiwan, is today, is now. You know, and so two radically different, uh, and and so I I tend not to take sides because I think that's the way the play was designed as a as a collage, and whatever whatever angle you take to see it, you see different things. I believe that play was performed at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Is that right? It was it was in twenty fifteen? What was the reception there like? How did how did people encounter the work there? I think many people got it. Um, and it, and to me, it's not a difficult play to get. You know, it's of of my works. It's it's quite straightforward, uh, but the straightforwardness of it means you have to understand that there are two two shows happening here. If there are two plays, there are radi- radically different plays that are vying for the stage. Um, and I was really surprised how little. Actually, I shouldn't have been, but I was very surprised at how little the American audience knew about you know, things Taiwanese or things Chinese. Uh, Again, I shouldn't be surprised uh, now that I know. But it was like, mm, to me, I was saying, what does an American audience need to know to be able to, to, to watch this play? And I thought two things only. One, you have to know what happened in 1949, which is the Civil War ended and two million people um, made this exodus from China to Taiwan. And then they weren't be, weren't able to see their families or loved ones for forty years. That's the first thing. The second thing you need to know is the Peach Blossom Land is the name of a classical Chinese piece of prose, which is very very famous. and And the name Peach Blossom Land means utopia. So those two things um, now in this version, I've written them into the script so that uh, they're explained during the performance. And that's something I learned from. Uh, from my Ashland experience also is that, yeah, um, it's, I found that people uh, could, un- could understand what was going on uh, in the in individual place. But for some reason, many people didn't get why the whole collage was built this way in the first place. In other words, yeah. In other words, I've, I've built a play based on a serious theme and a comic theme and then the two of them are vying for the stage. And so what what does that set up in, in artistic terms, uh, in thematic terms? And I think that was a bit difficult to read for some people, but for many, I'm, I know they got it. In fact, uh, on, the first, on the first day of performance, the two buses of, uh, of, of junior high school kids came in from, from a town in Oregon. And I was worried. I'm saying, wow, what are, are they going to be able to understand this? And they were spot on, uh, particularly at the very end. I remember uh, th- this very famous scene, at least in the Chinese world, the most famous scene is when the two lovers meet again in the hospital room. Uh, um, and then when the door, the door, bang, 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 is knocked. And then uh, I, I was in, sitting in front of these junior high students and they were going, what? No, it can't be. 
It is. It can't be. It is. You know, and and, yeah. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm going, wow, they get this. They really get this. And the door opens and, and Ying is there. They, you see, you see. And they, no, no, no. And you see, they're discussing among themselves. And and it was uh, a very, they really, they really got it. I spent, I spent a little bit of time in China and I definitely feel like the Chinese etiquette of being an audience allows for a lot more of that kind of conversation, not off topic, but about the play as it's unfolding. And, you know, did you see that? And, oh, what a great, you know, performance. Do you, do you feel like you kind of write with that kind of an audience in mind, an audience that's going to be kind of talking back to the performance to a certain extent? Not really. Actually, that happens once in a while. Yeah, you get, you get, uh, you get these audience members who think they're who feel like they're watching TV at home, you know. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> mostly, that's just annoying to you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's funny um, the kind of audience we bring in because theater is modern theater is pretty new in in all the places I've worked in Taiwan, in China, uh, in Hong Kong, uh, and so the plays we do. Sometimes they attract very, very new audiences, and some of those very new audiences are older people, you know. So it's it's quite uh, it's quite fun to see how they react, uh, and and often they come in groups and they're talking to each other all the time, and they're trying to you know the wait wait look look who's coming wait wait no no oh it's her you know and and it's it's like you know sometimes the audiences next to them say shh you know but uh, other times they just let them go. I remember um, at the at the premiere of The Village in Taipei at the National Theater, um, we had a full house and it was so moving because so many people from actual villages were, were part of the audience. And then when there was a song sung in the first act, um, the, my, my home is on the Songhua River, uh, suddenly an old lady at the back of the, of the audience stood up and sang with it, you know, and very loud. Very loud. And, and and then, you know, the audience at that moment would not stop her, you know, for, for anything because it was such a yeah. beautiful moment. And when she finished it, she shouted. She said, that was our song. Yeah. And then she sat down, you know, and everybody sort of nodded and saying, cool. You know, it's nobody was saying, you know, shut up, you know, none of yeah. that. So that's that's the way it is. And, and some of my plays do create that sort of uh, emotion in audiences. I'd like to talk a little bit about your play, Look Who's Crosstalking Tonight, and kind of the broader question of crosstalk in your work. I think when an American audience or, you know, kind of even an American who's relatively knowledgeable about theater history, when they think about theater in China, they think about Beijing opera. But mm -hmm. it seems like in your work, the tradition of crosstalk is a much more prominent influence. Uh, you mm -hmm. know, correct me if I'm wrong about that. And and I get the sense from your kind of introductory materials in this book that a lot of people in China wouldn't even really think of crosstalk as a type of theater. It's it's maybe more more similar to to stand up comedy than it than traditional theater. Could you talk about kind of what that art form is and then how you've made use of it in your plays? Going back to as you mentioned earlier, your your very first play. Sure, um, crosstalk originated in uh, in the Qing Dynasty, which was the like the, the late 19th century, uh, it's xiangshen uh, is what we call it in Chinese. And it's, it is a, is a two-person, uh, normally two-person comic dialogue, very much like uh, who's on first. Okay, I think that would be the best example that you could find uh, because it's as witty, as smart, uh, and uh, it attacks political and social issues 
And in the day, it was probably the only the only way that people could vent their frustrations at, a, at the government, uh, and also in a very funny way, because it's northern Chinese, it's Beijing, there's lots of wry humor in there. Um, for instance, one of the most, in, for me, when I was a kid, and I, and I loved to listen to these crosstalk uh, records, um, the most famous one would be uh, a play called, uh, a scenario, okay, so they're like 15, 20 minutes only, and it was called the great um, switcheroo, or you, or if you want, like uh, role changing or, or or job changing, and it's about when the uh, when the emperor died in the Qing dynasty, and all the opera singers were not allowed to sing; they were banned from the stage because of the mourning period. And so, how could they make a living? And so, each of them had to go you know, like into the marketplace to sell cucumbers, or you know, this and that. It's so funny, and it's so sad. And it's it's like it's it's social commentary, it's political commentary, and it's funny as hell, you know. And so this is the kind of stuff that, um, to me, yeah, this is the this is what what a society would love, you know. And and this is what we were speaking earlier about, like the ancient Greeks or whatever. And this, to me, was uh, the epitome of what theater could do to a society, to an audience, you know. And so nobody had ever done a complete evening of of crosstalk in, in with the same themes. Uh, you, if you had an evening of crosstalk entertainment, it would be like stand-up comedy, different duos coming up and doing different routines. But, uh, what we did was, uh, I wrote, I wrote this play with the two other actors, uh, uh, this, that evening we performed crosstalk in 1985, uh, using crosstalk to comment on the fact that crosstalk had died in Taiwan. Uh, it was quite an amazing moment for me to realize that this art form, which I loved so much, was no longer being performed. Uh, and uh, and and the, the catch was no one even remembered it. You know, Taiwan had gone through a, a huge economic uh, moment in the late 70s when I wasn't there. So suddenly so many things died during the building of these millions of, build, of new skyscrapers in Taipei. And so... My thought as a newly minted PhD from Berkeley, Berkeley would be, what is the influence of modernization and how does, it, how does it kill culture? And how can we as intellectuals re- reflect on that in our art? And so I, we wrote this play. We, we thought only intellectuals would be interested in it because it's talking about the death of culture and the death of art. But since we use crosstalk to present it, it was so funny that it became a popular hit. Um, this is the same play I'm talking about where I had to fend off the censors. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and, and a friend of mine from my college days became, who had become a record executive made it into a two-cassette tape, two tape set. And I was, wow. saying, I was saying, who in hell would want to buy two hours of people, two guys talking? And it sold a million sets. I'm not kidding you. Uh, and Taiwan's and not, I mean, how many people are in Taiwan? 20 million people at the time. And they say the, so that's the, 5% the of the population, <laughs> but the bootleg, but the bootleggers got, got five times as many. That's what they say. So it was quite a phenomenon at the time. Uh, everybody could, could say some lines from that play. Yeah. Uh, if I was getting on a taxi, it would be playing it. You know, you could hear it everywhere for a couple of years. Uh, and look who's cross-talking tonight, which is collected in, this, in the selected plays of uh, this time from the University of Michigan. That was the second 
in the series four years later. And that had equal success, in fact, even more success. Uh, and so I'd, I guess I found a, a, a niche there where we could speak about uh, important and uh, political questions and be very funny about it. You know, and, and so that play, too, became... I mean, I have people who come to me today and on the street and they say, hey, you know, remember these lines? And they can they can just give me a whole paragraph from Look Who's Cross-Talking Tonight and, because they memorize it. And, and they say, they all tell me that um, it's, it's the laughter that brings them through tough times. And, and, and many of them just had those tapes and just played them over and over again, you know, while they're going through like um, the, the, the college exams or, or going through military, whatever, uh, difficult, difficult times. Yeah. And that play, I mean, it definitely deals with some, some, dark and kind of traumatic uh history i mean it's not like it's you know it's it, 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 if you want to compare it to stand-up comedy it's it's you know it's maybe more like uh you know george carlin or something like that than it is like you know i don't mm-hmm. know I, I don't want to disparage some other comedian whose work is less intellectually serious but you get you get that you get what i mean i mean it's it's not like it's it's just light fair i mean it seems like what part of what you did was take the form of crosstalk and make it into a a dramatic form i mean you're reviving a form but you're also you know changing it and and kind of making it into a play with a with a kind of dramatic arc and and with with kind of thematic development and all the things that that you know a kind of we expect a a a play Mm -hmm. to have you are right in fact uh in that play the the fourth uh, scene called uh, the fourth son's homecoming um that really um elicited lots of tears in the audience mm. uh people it's it's supposed to be very funny and it is but it's so funny that it's and it, it hurts it's like um it's like the humor i use in the village also um which people say is so i mean you're laughing and suddenly you find yourself crying. Uh, that's what a lot of the audience um, has written about, actually, uh, as the experience of, of these plays. And for me, um, to, to talk about politics, to talk about very serious issues using comedy, you know, I think it's also, you know, comedy is hard. I think in many ways, uh, yeah, comedy is, yeah. Is, is harder than tragedy, uh, I think, in many ways. But to make the comic tragic, that is... Uh, to me, what I strive for. Well, I think that's a great note to end on, Stan. Thanks so much for appearing on New Books and Performing Arts. I really enjoyed getting to read your plays, and I really enjoyed uh, talking with you about them. My pleasure. Let, let us know when volumes four, five, and six come out, and we'll have you back okay. on. Okay, will do. We'll do. Thanks All again, right. Andy. Take care. All right, you too.